Good morning. Uh, I'm Chanoch Waxman, and this shiur is entitled Cain and Hevel, Structure, Parallel, and Drama. As my title indicates, this morning uh, I would like to study to learn a little uh, for uh, about the next hour or so the story of Cain and Hevel, found obviously in Bereshit Perik Dalid. Uh, but as the rest of my title indicates, I would like to do something uh, a little bit different, and I'd like to explain that as part of my uh, introduction. Uh, over the past 30 years or so, there's been what is somewhat or sometimes referred to here in the world of Yeshiva Taritzion and Michal Herzog as a revolution in the study of Tanakh. Uh, and as part of this, so to speak, revolution or evolution, uh, the way I like to think of it, uh, many new methods have been employed in the study of Tanakh, other than simply reading and looking at traditional parshanot. Uh, these new methods have all kinds of different names, and one might say that within this larger school of thought, which is sometimes called in Hebrew, Barav Yobinun, Tanakh Begoveinayim, or sometimes called in English, the literary method or the literary theological method, there are all kinds of different sub-schools. Uh, and what I would like to do as part of my shiur today on Cain and Hevel is to give you a taste of the very particular different methodologies or, or sub-schools. And what I would like to share with you is three different approaches to the story of Cain and Hevel. One which I think is based upon, I'll call this the structuralist approach, hence the term structure in the title. The second, what I would call the parallelist approach. Uh, and the third uh, approach, the third methodology I'd like to employ, I would call the dramatic or the narrative approach. Uh, now, each of these different approaches, so to speak, are adopted by different interpreters who have particular names, and I'll get to their particular interpretations of the story as I move along. But what I'd like to do is to give you a kind of taste of these different methodologies, to kind of highlight them uh, in a very particular way, to, to so to speak, um, sketch the outlines of the particular methods, and also uh, do something with the story of, of Cain and Hevel. Uh, so without further ado, let's begin the shiur, and hopefully all of this will become a bit clearer as we move along. Um, the story of Cain and Havel is found in Perak Dalid of Sefer Breshit. Uh, it begins in Perak Dalid Pasik Aleph, either in the Tanakh, or you should all have it on your source sheet, which is here at source number one, where the Torah tells us as follows. So, Adam knew Chava his wife, and she became pregnant, had a child, Cain, Vatomer Kaniti Ishet Hashem. I have either, well, it's not clear what that means, I have purchased, I have acquired, Actually, it probably means forged or made. Uh, the term kaniti has to do with forging or, or making. Uh, for example, uh, uh, in a kind of parallel to that, you take a look here in source number, um, sorry, source number, nine, which is Bereshit Perek Yudal Yutet, uh, when Avraham later on in, in, uh, encounters Malki Tzedek, Melik Shalem, we have there the following Pasuk in source number 9, Perek Yudal Pasuk Yutet says as follows, uh, In other words, Malki um, Tzedek says to Avraham that he is blessed to Kel Elyon, the high God, Kone Shemayim Varetz. Kone does not mean acquire, kinyan, as in rabbinic language, but in biblical language, kone probably means forge or make. Uh, so effectively, uh, what Chava says here, or what Isha says here at the beginning of the birth of Cain, at the beginning of our story in Perak Dalet, Kaniti Ishet Hashem, I have, I have made a man. Now, since we're dealing with the story of Cain and Hevel, and it's Sefer Breshit and Parshat Breshit, and the story is very, very familiar to all of us at this point, I don't think we need to go through the, the details of the, of the Psukim, but kind of a general outline of the, of the story Hamukar, of the, of the Sipur Hamukar, the story that's known to us, will be sufficient. First, of course, what happens? We have uh, the background, right? In the background that Cain uh, and Hevel are, are born. Then afterwards, we have the professions, right? Cain is an Adama, and Hevel is a Roetzon. Then third, we have, of course, the offerings, the Karbanot, that Cain brings the Karban and Hevel brings the Karban. Fourth, of course, we have the fact that God turns to Hevel's Karban and does not pay attention to Cain's uh, to Karban. Fifth, Cain becomes quite upset, right? And after Cain becomes quite upset, as we well know, he kills his brother, at kind of the dramatic high point of the story. And things go along from there uh, to his being cursed and banished and exiled and etc., etc., etc. So we, we know the story. Um, what I would like to do 
is to turn to the first approach uh, that I would like to suggest, what I call the structuralist approach uh, to reading the story. Um, as its name indicates, it has much to do with the structure, or even the, the literary microstructure of the story, and I'll explain what I mean by this as I move along. Um, and this approach uh, is often uh, associated with uh, a writer, thinker, and interpreter, uh, current interpreter, named Rabbi Hanan Samet. Um, for those of you who are familiar with him, you're familiar with him. For those who are not, over the last 15 years, uh, Rabbi Hanan Samet has produced a body of work in his shiurim and his writings that employ a very particular literary methodology for interpretation of the Torah, which has much to do with structure, arrangement of words, chiastic structures, and the like, um, key terms, key words, and I'll kind of explain some of this as I go along. And I'd like to begin our interpretation proper of the story here uh, with uh, sharing with you Rabbi Hanan Samet's approach to the story of, of Cain Behevel. The first structural point he makes is, let's take a look at the names uh, in the story, the way the names are arranged or associated in the story. Uh, and let's pick it up in source number one for the moment, uh, from the beginning, I'll read here in Perak Dalet, Pasuk Aleph, uh, at this time. V'adam yada et chava ishto, v'atar v'atelad et kayin, v'atomer kaniti ishet Hashem, Pasuk Bet, v'atosef laledet et achiv, now, if you paid a, a attention to the pattern here in the first two parts of the story, uh, in part one, which is the birth, who was first? Of course, Cain, because he's the Bukhar, right? Vatel de Cain, Vatoma Kanishit Hashem. Who's second? Pasig Bet, Vatosif, Vatosif, Et Hevel. Hevel is second. But then we get to the second uh, part of the story, which is not the birth, but it's rather the professions. And here in the professions, things switch around. Okay? Uh, you take a look. Uh, now, with computers, you can do all kinds of things in terms of highlighting structure. So if you take a look at uh, source number uh, uh, two here, what I've done is I've arranged the various Kain Hevel or Hevel Kain pairs uh, in the story. And you can see it here in source number two, where num- sub number one here, uh, is, of course, the, the birth, right? Again, I'll read it again. And uh, she continued to give birth, and she gave birth to, to Hevel afterwards, right? Because he's, he's kind of afterwards, he's second, right? Now we get to uh, sub number two here, which again, the professions. Here Hevel's first. And Cain was a worker of the Adama. Now, flip the page, and we get to sub number three, which is simply the next part of the story, which is the offering. And it was at the end of days, perhaps after a year, a certain period of time had passed. Here in this pair, which is the offering, Cain is first, right? He's the first one to bring his korban his offering. The Hevel Hevi Gamhu, right? Is it to emphasize that Hevel is posterior? Hevel is later. Hevel is second. Gamhu, he also brought. Mibcharot Sono, Umichel Vehen. So in pair three, we have again Cain first uh, in terms of the offering. Sub number four, uh, moving along. Here we get to pair four, which is the final uh, doublet of the eight appearances or the eight names, Hevel Kain, and the four pairs that I'm discussing right now. So, uh, sub number four. God turned to Hevel. Here, Hevel is first. And chopping out the last part of it in terms of the acceptance of the offering. Here, Hevel is first. Hevel at Minchato. Minchato. Lo period uh, for the for the moment. Now, in other words, if you sketch this out, we have here four pairs of Kayan Hevel uh, or Hevel Kayan. In pairs one and three, it's Kayan Hevel, Kayan Hevel, right? And what are pairs one and three? Pair one, which is the birth, and pair three, which is the initiative of the offering. But in pairs two and four, uh, Hevel is first. It's Hevel Kayan, Hevel Kayan. Pair two, uh, which of course is the profession where Hevel is a, a Ro'etzon, and Cain is in Oved Adama, and Pair 4, which is Vaisha Shem, that God turned to the offering of Hevel, but did not turn to the offering of, of Cain. Okay, so this is a very interesting uh, structural point on, on some level, right? And as we kind of move along in the story, going back to uh, source number one, right? Um, 
if we go back to the, you know we go move on, going back to source number one, take a now look at, at we got we had read pasuk hey which said as follows. Uh, I'll read pasuk hey again. Velkain velmin chato lo sha'a to Kain and his offering God. Then turn veichar lekain maod veipu panav. Kain is upset, and that's it, right? It's exact after these four pairs, right? That's exactly the point in time where suddenly now Kain is already upset and he's headed full throttle. Uh, so to speak, towards doing in uh, Hevel, towards uh, killing his brother. Now, the question is, what is what is the significance uh, of this kind of uh, structural uh, point? How does this contribute in any way whatsoever to our understanding of the story? Or perhaps what we might think of as kind of the, the central question uh, in interpreting the story of Cain and Hevel, which is, you know, why is this story in the Torah? And this is a kind of introductory point that I wanted to raise a little bit earlier but didn't get to. Uh, one of the things that unites many of the modern interpreters of the Torah um, is a kind of interest in often a, a central question. Uh, and that central question often is vis-a-vis any particular story in the Torah. What is this story doing in the uh, Torah? And, and the answer to what is this story doing in the Torah does not you know, consist of, oh, because it happened. Mere history or mere chronology uh, is not the answer to this kind of question as to what this story is doing in the Torah. There's a reason, there's a logic, there's a rationale, there's a message uh, behind every story of the Torah. And unpacking uh, the rationale, the meaning, the message, the inner teaching of a particular story, that's always, uh, in this kind of school of thought, the answer for why a particular story is found in the Torah, especially when dealing with Bereshit Perak Aleph through Perak Yud Aleph, what we sometimes call the prehistory. Many things happened in the prehistory of mankind, right? And there are many other things uh, that have been included, that could have been included in the Torah. But it's this story, the story of Cain and Hevel, that's included here. And, and the question is, what's what's the meaning and what's the message? So Rav Samet tries to uh, make the claim that the structure is, and in his first structural point, the structure is is often the key to unpacking the inner meaning or the message of the story. And, and he takes this, and he takes this uh, structure um, and he interprets it in a way that, that gives you a kind of, of meaning. And he has kinds of uh, two assumptions uh, in... He has two assumptions uh, in interpreting the, the various Cain-Hevel uh, pairs uh, that I mentioned here. Assumption one is since it goes A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, that's not right. It goes A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, right? In other words, that in each pair uh, of this pattern, uh, that which comes first is of priority or is uh, superior uh, in a certain way. And, and that's his... Um, uh, first claim. That that which comes first has a certain kind of priority or superiority in any given pair. And his second claim is since we have a pattern here of A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, pairs one and three, the A, B pairs, the Kai and Hevel pairs match, and pairs two and four, the B, A pairs, the Hevel, Kai and pairs also match. Okay? Uh, now, to put some flesh on the bones of this kind of skeleton that I just outlined here, the two principles of one, priority indicates superiority, and two, the matching of the like pairs, one and three and two, four, Rav Samet suggests in his writings uh, and in his shiurim as well, something along the following lines. From a human perspective, uh, uh, the firstborn, pairs one and three, reflect what we might think of as a, as a human socio-economic cultural perspective. Uh, from this perspective, of course, uh, going back to Pasuk Aleph for the moment, and let's read it again. Uh, she gave birth to her firstborn, and he's Kayan. 
he's a forged, created human being. He's of significance. And he has priority and he is superior, certainly from the perspective uh, of his parents. Of course, uh, not surprisingly, what is the family profession of Adam v'chava? The family profession of Adam v'chava is being an Oved Adama, which was the original profession back in Gan Eden. And Cain takes over the family profession uh, as the natural continuer of the uh, of the family. Now, from the same human socio-economic perspective, which renders the firstborn Cain significant, and Hevel, by the way, the secondborn. Uh, he's really not significant whatsoever uh, because who needs, uh, on a certain level, more children, right? Uh, now, we don't think that way, right? But the firstborn is there to take over for the family and Hevel is born second. And how does the... How does the Mikra portray this? Take a look at Pasuk Bet. Vatosef laledet et achiv et hevel. And she continued to give birth, uh, a sense of something coming afterwards. Something came out afterwards almost. Uh, et hevel. What does hevel's name mean? Breath, vapor, nothingness. So you have created, forged, made significance, uh, who takes over the family profession, uh, versus nothingness on some level. And that's what you have in, in pair one. Now, Rav Samet's quite interesting idea, uh, based upon, uh, Near Eastern culture, is that just as in the socio-economic perspective of the firstborn who take over the family business, who create human society by engaging in agriculture, which is incredibly significant, so too, on the ritual plane, uh, the firstborn, Cain, will have priority. He will not just take over uh, um, uh, economics and culture, but he will also assume the mantle of religion, uh, of worship. And hence, he brings uh, uh, the offering first in pair three. Uh, if we take a look in Pasuk Gimel, it's the yearly offering. Miketzimim tends to be a year. And as we know from later on in Sefer Shmuel, there's an institution of bringing a yearly offering. At the end of the year, Cain brings the family offering by Cain from that which is granted by God. So, from this kind of socio-economic, human-based, even religious perspective, Cain has priority, and that is uh, pair one and three. But... There's another perspective that's reflected here, according to Rav Samet, in uh, pairs two and four. And that's not the human perspective, but that's the divine perspective. If we pick it up uh, for the moment, uh, let's take a look in um, uh, Pasuk uh, Bet, for the moment, in the middle of the Pasuk. Here in pair two, the professions, Havel is first. Why is Havel Roetzon? V'kayin haya oved adama. Rav Salmon argues that from the divine perspective, in terms of the professions, what is a better or superior profession? What is a better or superior profession is Ro'et Son. That is a, a better profession from the divine perspective, not, not the Oved Adama. And hence here in pair two, Hevel is first. And likewise, this is the explanation of the great question of all questions. Why does God turn to the Korban of Hevel and not to the Korban of Cain if Cain is the initiator of the religious ritual of sacrifice and offering to God? That's because Pair 4 is the natural continuation of Pair 2, uh, where in Pair 2, Hevel is the Ro'etzon, which is the superior profession in the eyes of God, and the divine eyes. That's why God turns to the uh, Korban, the offering, uh, in Pasuke, in Pasuk Dal, because he's a Ro'etzon. Now, what Rav Samet points out here, effectively, from his first structural point, is that the story is about a contrast or a divide between the human perspective and the divine perspective. From the human perspective that's, int- that's rooted in socioeconomic and cultural reality, Oved Adama, being a worker of the ground, is really the ultimate profession. But from the divine perspective, pairs two and four, which is rooted in a divine spiritual perspective, then Ro'et Son is a higher level and a better profession. And that's one of the fundamental meanings uh, of uh, of the story, according to Rav Samet. And I will uh, come back to this in, in, in a second. Now, that's Rav Samet's first structural point. His second structural point has to do with what's famously known in Hebrew as uh, Milat Mancha, sometimes translated into English as a guiding word, uh, or um, it's called in English a, a key word, 
And uh, it was originally called in German a uh, Leitwort, uh, but that doesn't really matter for the moment, unless any of you speak German. Uh, and, and the idea is that in any given uh, uh, literary unit of the Chumash, or of the Tanakh in general, you can find one word that appears many times over, and sometimes seven, that being a significant number. Now, uh, since we nowadays have computers, uh, that makes finding keywords or highlighting keywords a lot easier. And it's rather obvious that the key term uh, in the story of Cain and Hevel is Adama. Uh, take a look in Pasuk Bet for the moment in source number one. Vatosef Cain lalevet et achiv et Hevel, vai Hevel roetzon, he was a worker of the ground. Again, in Pasuk Gimel, the end of the days, uh, from the uh, uh, fruit of the ground, his korban. Jumping down to Pasuk Yud, when God gives um, uh, Cain reproof uh, for killing his brother. Pasuk Yud says, That's the third time. Pasuk Yud, Pasuk and the word Adama uh, appears uh, six times in, in the story. It's a, a kind of key term. Cain uh, uh, is an Oved Adama. Cain brings a Korban uh, from the fruit of the Adama. Uh, the ground swall- Adama swallows up he- Hevel's blood. Uh, God curses Cain from upon the face of the Adama in Pasigid Aleph. He's told that if he works the Adama in Pasigid Bet, it won't help him. And finally, in Pasigid Aleph, Cain laments. Adama is very, very, uh, central, uh, in the, in the story. Uh, in other words, is the ground covers up the, the blood of, of Hevel, right? But even though uh, the ground covers up the blood of Hevel, the ground doesn't really cover up uh, the blood of Hevel. Because in the end of the day, God knows. And eventually what happens to Cain and his relationship with the Adama, which is so important uh, to Cain, right? That's what he does. That's what his whole personhood is connected to, being Oved Adama. He brings a korban from the Adama. And what does he say in the end of the day, when we get to the last occurrence of Adama, uh, in Pasuk Yudalid, Adama. Today I was divorced or thrown out or exiled from upon the Adama. Upanecha esater, I'll be in exile. My life is simply put, not worth living, and there's no life left if I am detached from the Adama and whatever connection to God that generates. And, and Cain is gripped by a sense of hopelessness and existential meaningless uh, when he's exiled from the Adama. And there are two points here. One, that the Adama will not cover up Cain's sins. Cain can't take refuge uh, in being an Oved Adama and in the Adama, because in the end of the day, the Adama does not cooperate and does not really cover up the blood uh, that he spilled. And second, he will be exiled from that very Adama uh, because of his sin of fratricide, because of his sin of, of murder. So in the end of the day, Adama is not a solution uh, for Cain, is another point that emerges from uh, the story here. Now, Rav Samet gets this, and I've already kind of put the cart before the horse here, from the very fact that Adama is a key word in the story. So if Adama is a key word in the story, uh, you, you've got to follow it through, and uh, following it through, you'll eventually come up with the ideas I just suggested, which is, again, one, uh, that the Adama will not really cover for Cain's sins, and two, that he'll be exiled uh, from the from the Adama. Now, uh, for those of you who are kind of familiar with the type of uh, approach that I've been discussing, what I, again, what I call the structures approach, the word Adama should not really appear six times uh, in, in the story. As I kind of hinted at this a bit earlier, it should occur... Seven times, right? There's a problem here, right? And it's almost like, you know, the, the facts don't fit with the theory. And when the facts don't fit with the theory, you always have to, what do you do when the facts don't fit with the theory? You have one of two options. You can either adjust the theory, or you can readjust the facts. Uh, so, so Rav Samet, and I am a, a great fan uh, of his writings, sometimes will readjust to the facts uh, to fit with the theory. Uh, and in this case, he claims that, in point of fact, the word Adama really appears seven times uh, in the story. Because if you really think about it, uh, there's another word that I bolded here. Take a look in Pasuk Chet, uh, which is uh, the scene of the Retzach of the murder itself. 
they were out in the field. Vayakam kain al hevel chivayargeo. Now that's 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 if if kain. I'm I'm from Queens. That probably doesn't mean that much to any of you. But but if if I was kain. I would invite Hevel to Shea Stadium. Uh, they don't have Shea Stadium anymore. Uh, and that's his home turf, literally. That's his home turf. Uh, and and the, the, the conversation and the murder happens uh, on Kayan's home field. He's got the home field advantage, the Sadeh slash the Adama. Now, Rav Samet has a brilliant uh, discussion uh, about how the word Adama couldn't be used here because of all kinds of grammatical considerations and therefore was switched out and swapped out for Sadeh, but it really should be Adama, and Adama appears seven times in the story. And he also has another brilliant discussion demonstrating how there's a chiastic structure of the seven times that the word Adama uh, appears in the story. Uh, now, I find neither discussion persuasive whatsoever, both very time-consuming, uh, and therefore I'm not going to share them with you. But nevertheless, uh, the idea here stands on its own, that it is clear that Adama is a key term, Milat uh, Manche, in the story, and the ideas here are, again, that uh, the Adama will not cooperate in covering up Cain's uh, sin, and uh, he is eventually exiled from the Adama, uh, and, and this great tragedy uh, ensues. Now, to sum up, uh, based upon these two structural points, the microstructure of the pairing of the Kai and Hevel names, uh, and the uh, appearance of Adamaz Milat Mancha, uh, effectively, Rav Samet kind of delineates um, uh, two fundamental, or two or three fundamental interrelated themes in terms of understanding the story, uh, what, what it's doing here, and I'd like to just kind of sum them up. Uh, one, uh, that while from the human socioeconomic, even religious perspective, Oveda Adama is a superior profession, uh, from the divine perspective, that's not the case. Roet Zon, being a shepherd, is a vastly uh, preferred uh, uh, profession. Um, second, um, this is related to the first idea, that you know the, the, the firstborn is what's significant and what's important, right? Uh, it, from a human uh, perspective. Not so from a divine perspective. Uh, it could be the second born, right? It depends on what he chooses and, and what he does, etc. That's what's uh, significant. And third, uh, that one cannot take refuge in being an Oveda Dama, it does not cover up one's sins, and one will eventually be, be exiled or thrown out or, or exiled from the very Adama that they hold uh, so dear. Now, um, what Rav Samet does with these ideas, and this is very important in his approach, is that often these kinds of meanings that are drawn out of structure are connected to larger biblical themes. Uh, and, and in fact, all of the ideas I, I mentioned here are related to larger biblical themes that we recognize from later on uh, in Tanakh. And here I'll flip my numbers uh, for the moment, right? Take the idea that from a human perspective, the Bechor uh, might be uh, significant, the firstborn. What we might call the iron law of primogeniture, right? Which existed in the ancient Near East, that the, that the firstborn is the one, right? And that might be true from a human perspective, but Sefer Bereshit is full of a pattern of exactly the opposite over and over and over. Where God prefers not the firstborn. And we can name some names. Hevel might be the first example of this kind of thing. Yitzchak and Yishmael, Yaakov and Esav, uh, and so on and so forth. And perhaps Yosef and his brothers and Moshe and Aaron. And this is a classic biblical theme uh, that we recognize. Furthermore, the Avot, the forefathers, were eight own, right? Oved Adama is a problematic profession. Why is Oved Adama a problematic uh, profession in, in the biblical uh, world? It's necessary. Why is it a problematic profession in the biblical worldview? Well, there, there are a few different ideas uh, that are found later on in, in Kumash. Let's take a brief look uh, at a, a couple of examples. Uh, take a look for the moment in source number three, which is Dvarim. Perikhet, uh, Pasuk Zayin through Yud Zayin. And here the Chumash in Sefer Dvarim describes what's going to happen when you come into the land and you're going to inherit the land and it'll be wonderful and there'll be blessing. But, but when you have all this plenty in the land, what can possibly happen, right? When you, when you live upon the Adama and you have such astounding plenty, take a look at Pasuk Yud Dalid. Being a successful Oved Adama can lead to arrogance, can lead to a sense of having done it on one's own. In a famous Pasuk, a few Pasukim later, Pasuk Yudzayin, 
It was my strength uh, that led to this great, wondrous achievement. The Oved Adama can easily become arrogant and can forget God uh, in the biblical worldview. Or, uh, the Oved Adama can also think that the land belongs to him. It's his. He worked it. He made it. He grew it. It's his labor that he's mixed with it. And as part of his arrogance, he can have a sense of ba'alut, of ownership, of control, and many of the halachot in the Torah can be viewed as coming to contradict this perspective of ownership and control over the land that one has mixed one's labor with. Uh, take a look in source number four, which is Ve'ikra Per Kafei Pasik Kaf Gimel in uh, the part of the Torah that describes the laws of Yovel. Man is just a sojourner or a ger uh, or a temporary resident upon the land because the land truly belongs to God. In other words, being an Oved Adama uh, can lead to arrogance, it can lead to a sense of ownership, and therefore it's not necessarily the best and chosen profession because it generates theological problems. Rav Samet also cites Rav Hirsch and a thinker named Hillel Zeitlin uh, uh, that based upon Near Eastern culture and things we know in general point out that, you know, being an Ovid Adama means you're dependent upon nature. Uh, and if you're dependent upon nature, that can lead to the worship of nature. And the worship of nature is, of course, I wouldn't say it's the slippery slope, but it's almost part of the essence of Avodazara. Uh, one actually uh, worships uh, the kochot, the forces of nature that allow one to be agriculturally productive. So from all, for all these reasons, uh, which are all biblical themes, uh, we can think of Rav Samet's interpretations connected uh, to uh, various biblical themes. One, the idea of the non-preference of the firstborn uh, by God. Two, uh, the preference of Roitzon over Obed Adama. Three, the problematic nature of Obed Adama as being connected to arrogance, uh, a human sense of ownership over the land, uh, and even uh, idol worship. And four, last but not least, if you think about it, the land will not, the ground, the Adama will not cover up your sins. And if you sin, what will happen to you? You will be expelled. Another key theme uh, that we find in the Kai and Hevel story, that's of course found throughout Sefer Vayikra, Sefer Bamidbar and Sefer Dvarim. If you sin, you're going to go into exile. Just as uh, uh, Cain was, so to speak, eventually exiled and the ground wouldn't cover up his sin, so to Am Yisrael later on. Just take a look at one brief set of Sakim, source number five, which is Vayikra Perikirchet, Pasuk Kafdalad, which describes the Arayot. And we're told there at the end in Pasuk Kafchet, V'lot toki ota, the land will vomit you out. So, to put this all together, Rav Samet's structural approach uh, generates a whole series of meanings uh, which are related to biblical themes. And they relate to firstborn, Oved Adama versus Roetzon, hiding the Adama, etc., etc., etc. I'd like to move over to a second and hopefully time-allowing a third approach that I'd like to outline. And the uh, second approach uh, that I would like to discuss is what I would call the, the parallelist approach. Uh, and uh, many have pointed out, uh, nowadays we're very aware of parallels between one biblical story and another biblical story. Um, and in an article um, uh, on the story of Cain and Hevel, uh, Dr. Yoni Grossman, who happens to live here in Alon Shfut and also teaches here in Michal Terzog, has argued, and others have noticed this, that there is a parallel between uh, the story of Perak Dalid, uh, the sin, or the story of Cain and Hevel on the one hand, and a, a prior uh, story. And it's worthwhile here, as we move into the second approach that we're going to discuss, to take a look at uh, some of the details of the, of the parallel. Uh, take a look for the moment. Uh, let's pick it up in the aftermath of the Chait of, of Cain, Let's jump ahead to uh, Pasuk uh, Chet for the moment. It's kind of the third artificial paragraph in source number one. Now, what happens next? Pasuk Tet. I'm in source number one. God said to Cain, Where is Hevel, your brother? Vayomer, Lo yadati. Now, what happened here? Right after the sin, 
God asks Cain a very, very strange question. He asks him, Hey, Hevel Achicha, where is Hevel your brother? Now, doesn't, doesn't God know where... God is omniscient, right? He's supposed to know these things. Uh, doesn't God know where Hevel is? So apparently, he asks Hevel a kind of leading question to kind of open the, the, the discussion, right? And what's, what's, he has Kayan, a leading question to kind of open the discussion. Now what's Kayan's response in Pasuk Ted again? Vayomer, lo yodati ashomer achianochi. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Famous line, right? Now this is an evasive answer that kind of negates responsibility and also utilizes the term uh, anochi. Now, uh, does, does this ring any bells? Uh, you know, this is not the first sin uh, in, in in the Torah. Uh, go back, uh, not on your sheet, go forward on your sheet. If we go back to Paragimel, to the Chet uh, uh, the sin of Eitzadat Tovarah, take a look in source number six uh, on your on your page. Uh, which says as follows, after the chait of Edith Neitzadat Tovarah, I'm in Paragimel Pasuk Tet in source number six. Ve'ikra Hashem Elokim Eladam Ve'yomer Lo Ayeka, where are you? God asks an apparent informational question which he doesn't really need to ask because he knows exactly uh, where Adam is. So the leading question in the aftermath of sin, the Ehevelachicha or the Ayeka, is the first parallel between our two stories. Now as we go on in the very same Pasuk, what exactly does uh, uh, does Adam respond? Take a look in Pasuk Yud. Vayomar et kolchashamati began va'ira. Uh, and I was afraid, ki erom anochi, I was naked ve'echave, and I hid. And then, of course, when God asked him, did you eat from the tree? He says, no, no, the Isha made me do it. There's this whole evasive response that doesn't take responsibility in the aftermath of the sin, and it employs the word anochi, which I bolded here in Pasuk Yud. So the second response is not just, the second parallel is not, a, the query by God, which is a leading question, meant to elicit some sort of confession. But B, the response by man, which involves hitchamkut, which involves not accepting responsibility, which involves evasion, and involves the word anochi. And that's the second parallel between the stories. Now, moving along, uh, God then speaks, uh, let's go back to source number one, to the story of Cain and Hevel. And we take a look for the moment in um, Pasuk uh, Yud. Vayomer, me asita. What have you done? God says. Uh, jumping back to uh, pasuk uh, yud uh, gimel uh, in source number six, which says as follows. The Masita question is the third point of the parallel. Now, going back to the Kain and Hevel story in source number one, what comes next? Uh, basically, Pasikir Aleph, Vata Arur Atamina Adamasha Patstat Piala Kafta Timachikam Yadecha, Pasikir Beki Tavodit Adam. There's a klala, there's a, a, an arur that involves the Adama. The cursedness of the ground and the difficulty of agriculture and the impossibility of agriculture is stage four in the story of Cain and Hevel. But again, that's exactly the same thing as we find in the story of Adam and Chava. Go back to source number six uh, for the moment. Uh, take a look in Pasuk Yud Zion, which says as follows, The ground is cursed. So the cursing of the ground is stage four of the parallel that it's going to sprout thorns, and thistles. So as we begin to develop a sense of a full-fledged parallel between Sin 1, the story of Adam and Chava, and Sin 2, the story of Cain and Hevel. There are three other points, just to kind of finish the technicalities of the parallel, uh, that are worth uh, mentioning. Um, there's a very strange language uh, that's found in the Torah in only two places that's employed in both stories. Take a look in source number one. Uh, in uh, God's warning to Cain in Pasuk Zion, says as follows. The, if you're good, that's good. You'll be lifted up. And if you're not good, sin crouches at the door. And it wants to get you. 
Uh, you can control it, you can rule over the, the sin. The language of bo is highly unusual. That A wants to, so to speak, yearns for B, but B can control it. Something's very, very strange. It appears in only one other place. And that one other place is, of course, in our prior story back in Paragimel. Uh, take a look in source number six. Paragimel Pasik Tetzayan says as follows. I will multiply your pain, your difficulty. The exact same language. Woman desires man or yearns for him, but he rules over her as part of the curse, so to speak. So the chuka and yimshol language is a fifth point of parallel between the two stories. In a sixth point of parallel, both stories involve hiding or distancing from the face of God. Cain is eventually, he says, I'll be banished and hidden from the face of God. And man hides from God. Mipnei uh, Hashem. He hides from him after the sin. So the hiding, or the distancing Mipnei Hashem is another feature of both stories. And finally, in a seventh point of parallel between the two stories, both stories end effectively with Vatar Vateled, with the birth of the next generation. Take a look in source number six. Uh, in um, uh, no, I don't have it here. I'm sorry. Uh, you take a look in. Well, uh, you have to trust me on this one. Take a look in source number one. Pasuket Zion. Uh, oh no, there it is. Uh, source number one. Pasuket Zion. Perik Dalid, Pasuk Yitzayin, Vayeda Kain Etishto Vatar Vatele Etchanoch Vayibon Neir, Vatar Vatele, the birth of the next generation. But that, of course, was the very first pasuk of the Kain and Hevel story of Perik Dalid, which is after Perik Gimel, source number one. Perik Dalid, Pasuk Al Vadam Yadat Chavayishto Vatar Vatele Et Kain. What are we to make of this parallel between uh, the two stories? Because here we have another fascinating thing, right? We have this parallel between two stories and we need to interpret uh, uh, the parallel. So, uh, in, his, in his writings, Dr. Grossman suggests two different and very interesting interpretations of the parallel, one, uh, which I think are both very interesting, which I'd like to, to share with you. The first interpretation, he suggests, is that if you think about it, there's a certain kind of difference between uh, the chait of eating from the Yitzhah that tovar on the one hand and the chait of, of murder, uh, of killing one's brother, uh, on, uh, on the other hand. Uh, and uh, the way the story of Etzadat Tovra begins is God commands, Vayitzav, right? Uh, God commands, right? It's simply a command of God. It has no rationale. It has no reason. Uh, it's simply a, a divine fiat that one cannot eat from the Etzadat Tovra. You can even kind of see this in the text uh, that we have in front of us. If you take a look in... Uh, source number six in Perak Gimel, um, Pasuk Yud Aleph, we read as follows. It was God's command. Meaning, the reason why eating Nezadat Tovarah is problematic is because God commanded. It's a religious act not to eat, uh, from the Nezadat Tovarah. Now, uh, what about, uh, the latter? Uh, uh, sin, the sin of killing Hevel, of killing one's brother. Is there an explicit tzivui eloki not to do it? No, there isn't any explicit uh, tzivui eloki uh, uh, not to do it. We take a look in source number one, Perek Dalit Pasig Yud. What have you done? The blood cries from the ground. It's obviously, it's intuitive, it's ethical. And Dr. Grossman sees here two different kinds of actions, two different kinds of commands, two different axes of, of right and wrong. The first in the, uh, in the sin of Etzadat Tovrah is the divine command, the divine fiat, which is simply God's will, uh, the religious act of mere obedience or sheer obedience to the divine will, because that's what God commands. And that's in story one in Perak But in story two in Perak Dalid, we're dealing with something completely different. It's ethical, it's intuitive, it's obvious, the blood cries out from the ground. It's built into people in an obvious sense uh, that one cannot kill uh, one's brother. And the point of the parallel may be something like the following. Uh, once upon a time, it wasn't obvious that God cares about ethics. God certainly cares about that which he commands. The religious act, obedience, the tzivoy, that God cares about. But 
ethics, that's a human matter. Why would necessarily God care about that? And part of the, the great chidush, or the great innovation of monotheism in the ancient Near Eastern culture, is that God cares about both, right? He cares not just about His word, His absolute command, what we might call chukim, uh, the things that He wants or commands for whatever reason, but also God cares about ethics and, and goodness and human relations, what we would call mishpatim, the things that are obvious. And the point of paralleling uh, these two stories in this way and saying they're the same, the story of Adam and Chava and the story of Kain and the other, is to teach this great truth of monotheism that uh, obedience to God and ethics are basically the same thing, they're one and the same thing, uh, that Mishpatim and Chukim are effectively one and the same thing. And this is a great biblical theme that you find over and over throughout the Tanakh. Mishpatim and Chukim, one flipping back and forth. One, they're all the quillum, they're all part of the way God wants us to live. And what the story teaches us in the parallel, uh, through the parallel, is this kind of great truth of, of ethical monotheism uh, on, uh, on some plane. Um, that's one suggestion that Dr. Uh, Grossman makes. Another suggestion he makes, uh, based upon the parallel of the stories, uh, is to point out that there's a certain kind of progression uh, between uh, the two stories. Uh, and the progression uh, between the two stories is visible through the through the punishments uh, in the two stories. Let's take a look in uh, Parak uh, Gimel, back in source number six, uh, where a man is told that agricultural will be cursed. Right? Arura adama tavon techalana. And now take a look in Pasuk Kaf Gimel, the last little paragraph there. Um, and Pasuk Kaf Gimel, in source number six, says as follows. So, God sent men out of Gan Eden to work the ground that he'd be taken from it. And he exiled the men. Now, even though agriculture is cursed after the first sin, Man can still work the ground. It's difficult, but he can still do it. And he's sent out of Gan Eden, but apparently he's still quite close by. Why is he close by? Because there's a need for guards, right? There's a need for guards there to keep him coming back in Yitzhak Hayim. So, you know, if we think about Gan Eden as a place where the Shekhinah, where God is present, right? Uh, that God was Holech Leruach Hayom there, went out for a stroll, so to speak. It's the place of God's presence, Gan Eden. So when man sins, he's exiled from the divine presence. But he can still work the ground, which is a way to reach God. He can still be relatively close by physically. And that's, that's what happens after the first sin. But after the second sin, the story of Cain and Hevel, Things are altogether different. Go back to source number one uh, for the moment. Um, and we take a look uh, there. Take a look, for example, in Pasuk Yud Aleph, right? No agriculture whatsoever after... Uh, it won't work at all. It's just going to be... You have to exit. You, you know, it won't give you anything, Kayan, right? Uh, and then what are we told a bit further on in Pasuk Yudalad? Kayan says, you've exiled me from the ground. I'll be completely hidden from God. I'll be completely exiled from God. My life has no meaning. Anybody who finds me will kill me. And finally, uh, he goes to a different place altogether. If you think about sin as resulting in cursedness and exile, uh, and exile from the divine presence of Gan Eden, uh, then, then the result after the second sin is a lot worse, right? Uh, in other words, the pattern that's set up here is that sin leads to exile from the divine presence. And more sin leads to greater exile from the divine presence. And as the process of sin continues on, greater and greater exile from the divine presence ensues. And that's the meaning of the parallel. The meaning of the parallel is not just the truth of monotheism, but the meaning of the parallel is this pattern, and this ever-increasing pattern of sin and exile from the divine presence. And of course... This is another major biblical theme. Uh, you only need to think about the Supreme Sefer of Yikra I cited earlier. 
or all of Sefer Tzvarim, or the Torah's dire projections of the future history of Am Yisrael. Think of Eretz Yisrael as a stand-in for Gan Eden. Eretz Yisrael and the Adama of Eretz Yisrael as a way to be close to Shekhinah, to be close to the Divine Presence. Sin leads to exile, and ever greater sin leads to ever greater distance, to ever greater exile. And that's the meaning of the story of Cain and Hevel in the parallelist interpretation. Let me sum up, and then move over to a third uh, approach, uh, what I call the dramatic and narrative approach. Let me sum up perhaps some common denominators and what I've done up until this point. I've developed here two approaches and I've associated them with particular thinkers. The first approach, the structuralist approach, uh, which I attributed to Rebbe Hanan Samet. This approach focuses on the structure, keywords, etc. Sees here biblical themes of the kind of the preference of the non-firstborn by the divine, the preference of Roy Tzono of Oved Adama, the problematic nature of being an Oved Adama, and the impossibility of hiding one's sins in being an Oved Adama. A second approach, what I call the parallelist approach, which reads the parallel, uh, Dr. Grossman's approach. And reading the parallel between Parag Dalit and Parag Gimel generates, again, interesting and important and crucial biblical themes, that of, for example, uh, the truth of monotheism, the, the equivalence and the identity of the ritual, the commanded, the obedience, the chukim on the one hand, and the mishpatim, the ethics, the intuit, intuitive way of behaving on the other hand. They're really one thing and God cares about them both. Or alternatively, uh, the idea that sin leads to exile from the divine presence, right? Uh, and ever-increasing sin leads to ever-increasing exile from the divine presence, which emerged from our second approach. Now, one of the interesting common denominators of these two approaches, the structuralist and the parallelist approach, is that in both approaches, the object being interpreted is not really the story. The object being interpreted is the literary feature. The object being interpreted here is the structure in approach one. Or the object being interpreted uh, is is the parallel. That, that's actually what you're interpreting rather than, than the story on a certain plane. And, and what comes along with this is a kind of decentralizing or even dissolving of certain classic problems like character, theme, plot. I really didn't say much about any of those things uh, in presenting either of these approaches. They're really not what stands in the center of the interpretive project. What stands in the center is the structure or the parallel. Now, in addition, a third common denominator is that these approaches generate certain kinds of meaning, right? The meaning is almost always an answer to the question of what's this story doing in the Torah? And it's about teaching certain biblical themes, these very big, almost ideological themes, right? The meaning is theological, philosophical, ideological, or almost even formal in a certain sense. And I'll explain what I mean uh, uh, by that uh, as we go along a bit further. What I'd like to do is... and contrast, to some extent, these two approaches with a third approach, which I'm going to call uh, the dramatic or the narrative approach. Uh, I don't have uh, an interpreter or a set of interpretations to cite uh, for this third approach, uh, but in fact, it's my approach to the story. Uh, and not that in any way this contradicts anything I've said until this point, but I'd like to suggest a, a, a third approach, a dramatic or narrative approach, which I think although acknowledging everything we've done until this point in the Shi'ur, puts our focus back on certain kinds of classic questions of um, plot, character, and the like. And it's also very concerned with the dramatic unfolding of the story uh, with the narrative uh, per se. And I'd briefly like to uh, present this approach in the time I have remaining. Uh, so let's turn to two problems, two dramatic or narrative problems in the text, and then try to engage in a kind of reading in the time we have uh, remaining. Um, one of the very interesting things about the story of Cain and Hevel is that when you kind of read through it, it seems a bit choppy. Uh, let me explain what I mean by this. Take a look for the moment in uh, Pasuk uh, Dalit, in source number one. Now, Pasuk Dalit says as follows. The Hevel hevi gamhu God turned to Hevel's korban and not to Kayan's. And Kayan was very, very upset and his face fell. Now, what does it mean that his face fell? He was depressed, he was angry, he was furious, he was consumed with rage. At this point, after Pasuke, what is 
Cain contemplating. It's obvious he's contemplating taking it out on his brother, that little whippersnapper. He brought the better carbon and God turned to him and I've been rejected and he is consumed. You can just uh, imagine, you don't require that much imagination to imagine this, right? And the murder is about to happen and we jump right ahead to the inevitable result. And he said to Cain, come, so God rejected the Korban and then Cain killed Hevel. Now that's, that's, that's the dramatic unfolding of the story. What you should realize here, and I did this with the little artificial paragraphs that computers allow us to do, there's something that interrupts uh, the dramatic unfolding of the story. And the narrative approach is very concerned with interruptions of the dramatic flow of the narrative. And now let's take a look at Pasuk Vav. Right here in the middle, Why are you upset and why is your face fallen? Pasuk Zayin, Halo im teitiv se'it, v'im lo teitiv la'petach hatat rovet, v'lachat shukato, v'atatim shalbo. You're standing at the petach of this sin. You don't have to do it. You can control it, right? Uh, God warns uh, Cain. Now, yeah, that's very nice. But on a certain level, that has nothing to do with the flow of the, the story, right? It's, it's unclear why it's here. If this is a story about murder or whatever, right? And there is the divine warning, Sukim Vav and Zion, they really just seem to interrupt the flow of the narrative. And that's one kind of question or, 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 or problem. Uh, a second uh, problem I'll refer to is not what I would call a problem of narrative flow, but a problem of gapping. Let me explain what I mean by that. Take a look. It's a famous problem here in the text. Take a look at Pasuk Chet uh, for the moment. Pasuk Chet says as follows. Cain said to Hevel his brother, and he was in, they were in the field. Wait a second. What's missing here? What did he say to him? Uh, there's, there's some conversation that's just missing. There's a gap in between. And we're expecting to find out what he said to him. They were, then, after the conversation, they were out in the field. There's a, there's a problem here. Now, many have pointed out that what Midrashim often do is they fill in the gaps, so to speak, right? And, and Rashi here cites a series of conversations uh, between Cain and Hevel. What were they arguing about? They were arguing about religion, the Korban. They were arguing about who has the right to some theoretical sister. They were arguing about Makom HaMikdash. And what the Midrash does is it fills in the gap, uh, but, but the gap still remains, right? Uh, and, and Ramban says, well, you should rearrange the words and read it as if he invited him to come out to the field. There's no gap here. He's just inviting him to come out to the field. That doesn't work so well in the text. Ibn Ezra says that Cain told Hevel, God warned me not to kill you and I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, and it's just a, it, this astoundingly cruel thing that Cain does. But again, why is the gap there? And all the answers given by the Parshanim still leave the gap there. This is a dramatic or narrative problem how to uh, 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 deal with the gap. In the dramatic or narrative approach, there's a technique that's used to try to resolve these kinds of problems, and that technique is called close reading, uh, or kriyat smuda. And I'd like to go back and begin from the story again and try to do a kind of close reading of the story and present a completely different interpretation of the story than we've talked about until now. And I have six minutes, so hopefully we should be able to manage this. Okay. Pasuk Aleph. Vadam yada et chavayishto, vatar vateldet kain, vatomer kaniti ish et hashem. Kain is the firstborn. Kain's name means forged, created. Kain is significant. We go on. Pasuk bet. Vatosel ledet et achiv. She continued to give birth. Hevel is like the proverbial afterbirth. He just something that came out afterwards, right? And his name means nothing. So we have something and nothing, right? And, and something does what? Uh, Cain goes into the family profession. Hevel does something altogether different. He becomes a roetzon. Now, here's the interesting question. Why does Hevel become a roetzon? Why isn't there room? There's a lot of land around. You know, it's, it's the prehistory. There really are only a few people on the whole planet. There's a lot of space. Uh, he probably could just go a little bit, a few dunam over, a few acres over, and be in Oved Adama. Why does he choose not to be in Oved Adama? So Rashi already said so. Uh, take a look, it's a famous Rashi, it's source number 10. Roetzon, uh, Lefishinitz Kalaha Adama, 
Piresh lo me'avodata. Hevel realizes the ground is cursed and he wants nothing to do with the family heritage of struggle and difficulty and fate and cursedness. And he opts out of the family heritage of struggle and cursedness and fate. And he goes and he becomes a Ratzon. But not Cain. Cain is creative. Cain is strong. Cain is powerful. He's Kaniti Ishet Hashem. He seizes the family inheritance and he lives or struggles with the fate and the curse. And all of Cain's life, I believe, is lived in the shadow of his fate uh, and his cursedness and that of his family. Now, now we go on. Um, Cain brings the korban. Take a look in Pasuk Gimel for the moment. And, and God turns to Hevel's korban and not to Cain's. Why does God reject Cain's korban, right? Why does God reject Cain's korban? So Rashi says, there's an opposition between Mipri Adama and the Bechorot Sono Umichel Behen. Uh, Hevel brings from the best, and Cain brings in Lashon Rashi, Meha Garua, he brings from the Garua, right? I don't know if Cain brought from the Garua. I think there is a certain hint in the text here they brought from the Garua. But I would say as follows. God has cursed the ground. Cain lived, Cain, the powerful Cain, lives with this curse and this fate and this inheritance on a daily basis. He brings an offering begrudgingly uh, to the power, the power that is greater than him, the power that has cursed him. He is powerful, but God is more powerful. And he pays obeisance and fealty to God who has cursed him by giving him this offering. Now, this is not the proper kavanah or the proper intent uh, behind the korban. This is not free offering or free giving or avodat halev. What this is, is submitting to power. What Cain does when he brings his korban is, maybe it's garu, maybe it's not, but it's no more than submitting to power, giving fealty to the, to the, the entity that has cursed him and his family. And I would argue perhaps this is why uh, God uh, uh, rejects Cain's korban. Now, at this point, once God has rejected Cain's korban, things become worse. And Cain is already contemplating uh, uh, murdering Hevel. And, and why? That doesn't really need an explanation why Cain wants to kill Hevel. Hevel represents everything that bothers Cain, right? There is Cain, it's the cause of his korban not being rejected, uh, the cause of his korban being rejected, uh, Hevel has, so to speak, escaped, so to speak. So, so Cain wants to kill Hevel. And at this point, what does God appear? God appears and says to Cain the following in Pasuk Vav. Why are you upset? You don't have to do this. There's nothing inevitable here. There's, there's no, there's no fate. Uh, if you'll be good, you'll be lifted up. And if you won't be good, you'll sin again. Sin wants to get you. At this key moment, God appears to Cain and says, there's no fate, nothing is determined, uh, cursedness is not inevitable, you have free will, you don't have to kill your brother, this doesn't have to happen. And what exactly does Cain do with this petach, with this opening, with this possibility from God, what does Cain do? Absolutely nothing. And now we move on to the next uh, pasuk, pasuk chet. What did he say to him? Why did he kill him? What was the conversation? It's just a gap. It's empty. It doesn't matter. Because we already know why Cain kills Hevel. Cain kills Hevel because he's cursed, because he's fated to, because his parents sinned, and he's going to sin, because he lives a life uh, in, in the shadow of, of fate and cursedness, because there is no such thing as free will. He ignores God's warning, and he simply kills Hevel almost because, Lamalo, why not? Because this is who and what I am, and this is what I do. He just continues on the path that he's been upon all along. And I would like to say that the Close reading here resolves on some level both of these problems. Why the interruption? Because the warning is crucial to the story. And why the gap? Because there is no particular reason why he kills Cain other than everything we already know, which is Cain's embrace of what he sees as his fate, as his cursedness, which is who and what he is. Now, to put this all together and to wrap up, on some level, the story here is about ideas of living in the shadow of fate and cursedness, struggle, having free will, and it's about Cain's refusal to accept his free will and to continue on the path that he's on. That's what the story is about. These two 
are uh, great biblical themes, right? The fact that man has free will and can choose whether to be good or bad and cursedness is not absolute fate, that there's a destiny that awaits man if he chooses it. And Cain's refusal of his destiny is on some level the meaning of the story and this is a, a great biblical theme. What about the parallel that we saw uh, earlier, right? The fact that, you know, after the second sin, uh, there's greater exile and greater distance from Shekinah. Isn't it inevitable? The answer is no, it's not inevitable. Cain had free will, but it, it only became inevitable because of the choices uh, that Cain uh, made. I have to end my shiur, but I'll just kind of wrap up with two uh, summary points. The first, uh, to kind of contrast between the first two approaches I outlined, the structuralist and the parallelist approach, as opposed to the third, the dramatic and narrative approach that I outlined here. Well, in the first approaches, the object interpreted uh, is the literary feature, the structure of the parallel. In the third approach, the object interpreted is the story. And plot and theme and character and the details remain uh, very, very central uh, on some plane. And a second point, while in all the approaches, biblical themes and what the story is doing in the Torah remains central, there's a kind of difference between the last approach and the, and the former two. Well, in the former two, the meaning is almost purely theological, philosophical, ideological, unconnected to real people in the real world. In the latter approach, the dramatic and narrative approach, the meaning, while admittedly theological, philosophical, it's always connected to real people and the real lives of real people, the real Kain and the real Hevel uh, as characters in the story. I think that's what distinguishes the dramatic and the narrative approach from the other approaches I outlined here. Finally, in the real world, uh, Rav Samet does what Rav Samet does, and Dr. Grossman does what Dr. Grossman does, and Hanoch Waxman does what Hanoch Waxman does. In the real world, we all each do some of what the others do. Uh, and in the real world, in real interpretations, all these things kind of come together. Uh, and there are many other kinds of schools or features or thoughts uh, that can be shared. But uh, that we leave for a different occasion. Okay.